heard a joke about uh, this. There was a little girl. Uh, she had come home from church. Her parents wanted to know. They said, hey, honey, what are you learning in Sunday school? And she said, oh, well, we learned that Jesus walked on water and that he cast out deacons. Now, the word deacon is a word that is transliterated from the Greek. In fact, the, the, the word in Greek is the word diakonos. So you hear the word deacon, it's basically a transliterated word, much like baptism is from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse or to, a plunge, to plunge underwater. And that's where we get the word baptism. We get the word deacon from the word diakonos, which means servant or one who serves. Jesus used the same word when he talked about being a leader in God's kingdom. And I want to uh, point your attention to the screen in Matthew chapter 20. There's a story about Jesus where uh, somebody tried to say, Hey, Jesus, uh, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit at one at your right hand, one at your left hand? We want the positions of power and authority. And Jesus says, Wait a minute, wait a minute. You want these positions of power and authority so that you can feel good about having these positions of exalted leadership. I want to tell you about leadership in the Christian kingdom of God. So Jesus called them together and he said this, you know that the rulers in this world, now he's going to contrast now what happens in this world versus what happens in the kingdom of God because Jesus is bringing his kingdom into this world that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them but among you now he's talking about those of you who belong to God's kingdom with the reign of Christ among you it will be different whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant that's the word diakonos that's the same word that's used in first Timothy 3 when he's talking about the office of deacon and deaconess Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, after Jesus' burial and resurrection, dying on the cross for us and being raised from the dead, it says that God also highly exalted Jesus, and he sat down at the right hand of God, and at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow uh, saying that Christ is Lord. And that's going to happen to everybody. Every knee is going to bow whether they've accepted Christ as Lord, hopefully, or whether they haven't. That's still something that's going to happen in the future. So Jesus is exalted now, but when Jesus came to earth, he says this about himself. He didn't come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is our model for living. So this is the kind of life that we're to live if we want to be leaders in God's kingdom. I don't know if you caught the significance of what Jesus was saying in these words, but this is revolutionary in the world today and what we think of leadership and authority in the world today. Jesus just turned leadership on its head. Jesus says true greatness comes not from having others serve you, but in serving others. Service is the way to advance in leadership in God's kingdom. So instead of trying to get ahead and achieve so that others can serve us, we are to become more like Jesus so we can serve them. Of course, the ultimate example is always Jesus, right? So now we're going to talk about deacons, right? We're going to talk about these servant leaders uh, that the Bible calls deacons or deaconesses. They are the kind of men or women who, when they see or hear about something that needs to be done, 
when they see something that's missing, when they see a need, when they, when they hear about uh, an opportunity to serve, to help other people, to help a ministry in the church, they don't wait to be asked. They're the ones that are first in line, taking the initiative to go and do it, to go and meet that need. Now, we have an example of seven men in the early church, and many uh, church historians, they call these seven men from the book of Acts chapter 6, they call them, quote, the first deacons. The first time that you actually see somebody serving as deacons in the church. These are seven men who stepped up to serve, right? So the story is this. Uh, in the early church, the church was flourishing. And the church was growing like crazy. And God was totally blessing it. And they had their very first hiccup or problem in the church from the inside. You know, you remember the Jewish leaders were persecuting them from the outside, so they had to deal with outside persecution, but inside everything was great until this happened right here. So it says the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against. Now remember, this is in Jerusalem. The Hebrews, the, the Hebrew-speaking people had the dominance, they had the authority, they had the influence in this city and in the nation of Israel. So there were other uh, believers in Jesus who had Greek-speaking backgrounds. So in other words, you have this Hebrew-speaking widows over here, the Greek-speaking widows over here. There's a daily distribution of food to all the widows. But the Greek-speaking widows were noticing that there was a disparity. The Hebrews got better treatment than the Greek-speaking widows. And so they were being discriminated against. They brought this to the attention to the 12, to the apostles who were the leading the church. And the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. And they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Can you tell that's a New Living Translation? Yes. Not running a food program or not just distributing the food. So in other words, it wasn't that the apostles said, that's a menial task and we don't want to do that because that's something that other people can do. The apostle says, God has called us to this ministry of preaching and praying and teaching the word of God to these thousands of new believers that we cannot take time out to do this other kind of ministry. But you need to find certain people to do this kind of ministry. So it says, and so brothers... Here's, here's what the apostles said to do. Select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Spirit. Now, by the way, he didn't say uh, select seven men who are, are, who are in the trades, who have great mechanical ability, who have big toolboxes and big trucks, and make them your deacons. I, in, in this particular case, the qualifications that the apostles said, said seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. And the church chose seven men. All of them had Greek names, by the way. I think they were trying to make sure that there, there wasn't going to be any more discrimination in the distribution of the food to the widows. In fact, and if you want to know the high moral character, the high spiritual qualifications of these men who were chosen to serve, Stephen was one of these men that were chosen, and he was the first martyr in the church. And also Philip, Philip the evangelist, who shows up all throughout the rest of the book of Acts, had four daughters who prophesied, lived in Caesarea. Uh, these were two of the seven men who were chosen. So is, there is this supernatural gift. Besides being chose to serve, besides having an attitude to want to serve, 
when you look at a list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, there is also a spiritual gift called serving. It's mentioned in the book of Romans, chapter 12 and verse 7. And, he's, and Paul says this, if a person's gift is serving, then let him serve. See Peter Wagner, he's a great teacher from Fuller Seminary. He wrote an awesome book about 35 years ago. I read it in college. No, I, I, I read it when I was in elementary school. Did I say college? Yeah. Okay, yeah, when I was in college and we were, t and we were studying spiritual gifts, and he has a, a book that is specifically focused on spiritual gifts. And this is what C. Peter Wagner, the professor at Fuller, says about the gift of service. It is the ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to meet needs involved in a task related to God's work and to make use of resources to meet those needs. Sounds like a fancy definition, but basically says, look, these are, these are people that God supernaturally gifts. They, they have this kind of spiritual antenna. They detect needs that are there in the church, and they are motivated to make use of their resources to help meet those needs in the church. So that's the supernatural gift of service. Now, I don't know if um, a deacon has to have the gift of service in order to become a deacon or not. I, I, I tend to doubt that. But what, is a need, what does a deacon need to have? Well, they don't need to have the spiritual gift of serving, but they, that would be helpful, but they do need to have an attitude that says, look, I, it's not just about me. It's not about uh, getting my needs met, like when I walk into church. And, and I, I recognize this. Most people walk in the church and they say, look, I want to connect closer to God, and I want to sing, and I want to pray, and I want to I get a word that, that can help me live my Christian life this week. So, in other words, sometimes we come in with this idea of what do you have for me? What, how can I receive today? I understand that. When you get past that level and you get into higher spiritual maturity, you come to church with this idea of, God, you have blessed me all during the week. I want to go and be a blessing. I want to go and help others. I want to help meet needs. I want to encourage other people in the body of Christ. I want to help grow the kingdom. So having that attitude that wants to serve and meet other people's needs, there's the real key. And when you see somebody doing that consistently, that person probably would be a good candidate to become a deacon or a deaconess. So now let's go to the uh, let's go to First Timothy three because this is where Paul's writing this letter to Timothy. He says this is how you're to establish things to make sure the household of God is running in proper order. He talked about elders in the first half of chapter three, and now he's going to talk about deacons and deaconesses. So you go to verse eight, just back it up one slide, and he says in the same way, deacons must be well respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers. <clears throat> or dishonest with money. One thing I would call your attention to is as you're reading this list about qualifications for becoming a deacon, you say, ask yourself, say, well, what's the difference between a qualification for becoming a deacon and a qualification for becoming an elder? There are a few more qualifications for elder, but the list is, is very similar. It's, it's uncannily similar. To, to be an elder. So, in other words, it's not like the elders, they're the spiritual leaders of the church and the deacons just take care of the practical stuff. 
it's saying that moral qualifications for the deacons are almost as high as the elders, right? So there's supposed to be at least four things that you see right there in, in, chapter, in verse 8 of chapter 3. They're supposed to be well-respected, right? Well-respected. They're supposed to be dignified and serious in their business, both inside and outside the church. Find somebody who's well-respected in the, in the church community and also outside in the, in the city and community where they live. Somebody who has integrity. That word integrity means wholeness, right? That means that what you see is what you get. What you see, what you see in that person on Sunday morning when they're smiling and they're saying, hello, good morning, God bless you, that's the same character you're going to see on a Wednesday afternoon at Whole Foods, right? That's a person who has integrity. Somebody who's not a heavy drinker. As I joked two weeks ago, you're not just looking for a guy who can hold his liquor. You're looking for somebody who's not governed. Their life is not governed by the consumption of alcohol or drugs or any kind of mind-altering substance. And I'm afraid that in today's world, you have to include painkillers. You have to include prescription drugs, opioids, because they are a menace in our society now. It must not be heavy drinkers. They must be temperate, not holding to much wine is literally what it says there in 1 Timothy. And then somebody who's also not dishonest with money. Because if you're going to become a deacon or a deaconess, you're going to probably be handling some of the church money. Somebody who's not fond of dishonest gain. They're not, they're not characterized by somebody who might be greedy or somebody who just loves money, right? Paul's going to focus on that issue of the love of money and how it, it's such a trap and an, and an snare and, a, and an endangerment to us uh, later on in chapter 6 when he talks about the love of money being a root of all kinds of evil. So back to the deacons now, verse 9. The deacons, if you're going to choose somebody to be a deacon in your church, they must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience, right? They're to hold on to the Christian life as it's been revealed in the New Testament that we have, they're to, to know God's Word, to learn God's Word, and to live God's Word. That means by hold on, be committed to this. And to be committed to this idea of the mystery of the faith, right? We think of the word mystery and we think of something like there's a crime and it hasn't been solved. Or there's a reality happening and nobody has an explanation for it. The word mystery, mysterion, in the New Testament is not about something that is still hidden. Mystery in the New Testament means something that used to be hidden in the past, but now it's been revealed. So the deacon that's holding on to the mystery of the faith, they understand the gospel message that the hidden plan of God to save the world, to send his son Jesus into the world, and now Jesus being revealed for the rest of the world through the proclamation of the gospel, that's on display for everyone to see and hear and understand. So they're holding on to that mystery, that proclamation of the gospel that's on display for everybody. And then finally, someone who has a clear conscience, somebody who's cleansed by the blood of Christ. I found this passage in Hebrews 10, verse 22. It says, in Christ, in Christ, we have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. We have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. That's what the priests used to do in the Old Testament in the temple area. They used to sprinkle blood on all the sacrifices. They sprinkled blood and they said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
But since now we in Christ have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, we don't uh, uh, have any more offenses toward God. We are forgiven. Our consciences are clear. And that person walks in freedom. They're not walking around like, I'm just a, a terrible sinner and God's just, you know, by his mercy he hasn't struck me dead yet. No, it says, no, God has forgiven me and I'm walking in that freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set me free, right? So now verse 10, it says, before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. In other words, just, says, just because somebody's name shows up on the ballot, do you know that person? And when I say by the ballot, what I'm saying is in the fall, just like we do with elders, there are nominations for church officers, for elders and deacons and deaconesses. And when we have those nominations, certain people's names come up to say this person is candidating for deacon or deaconesses. And they have agreed that if, if they are elected to serve, they will serve. And, and one of the things that Paul says in here, it says, before they're appointed to that, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as, serve as deacons. When I say pass the test, I don't think it's talking about a doctrine. Like, okay, can you recite the Apostles' Creed? Can you give me John 3.16? Can you, you know, give me a doctrinal test? That's not the kind of test that I think Paul is talking about. They're passing a test of character. They're passing a test of morality. They're passing a test of when there's a need in the church, is this person one of the people in the front of the line to say, I want to help meet that need. What can I do to help, right? Those are the kind of tests I think that person is passing. And in that testing phase, there's three stages. Somebody's tested, somebody is proved by that testing, and when they're approved true by that testing, now they can be approved to become a deacon or a deaconess, right? Were they uh, approachable by the public? Do they have a good reputation of, of honesty and respect out there in the community? When they were given a responsibility or a task, somebody gets a job to do, did they follow through on that? Did they do what they said they were going to do? Did they, if they let their yes be yes, did they complete the promise that they made? So there, there are some of the qualifications that we have for deacons. Now, that's the men. Now we're going to switch over to the women. And women, I, I, I hesitate to tell you this, but you only have one verse. <laughs> Uh, versus all the other verses on elders and deacons. But in verse 11, it's specifically talking about women and what I think is talking about the women deacons. What does Paul say about them, right? So in verse 11, it says, in the same way, and the translation, the New Living Translation that I have here says, in the same way their wives must be respected and must not slander others, they must exercise self-control. They must be faithful in everything they do. Now, notice I put their wives there in yellow because literally in the, in the Greek, it says in the same way, the women, the women must be respected and not slander others. Now, some of the translators uh, took the liberty to say, well, we think they're, when they're talking about the women, most of the time when it mentions that, it's talking about the wives of the, of the husbands. So we're saying if it's deacons that we were talking about in this context, now we're talking about their wives. But the women, uh, another way of translating that could be the women who are serving as deaconess, as deacons, what we call the deaconesses, 
uh, literally the women. So it could refer to their wives or it could refer to the women deacons who are in the church. So if you're talking about the, the women in the church who are deacons, there are four qualifications right here in verse 11 to say, if you, are, if you see this person's name on the ballot, as you know this person or what you know about this person, do they meet these qualifications, right? So, um, by the way, in, the women are used as deacons all over the place in the New Testament. In the early 2nd century, this is outside the Bible, but in the early 2nd century, there was a Roman governor in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. His name was Pliny the Younger. Now, don't confuse him with Pliny the Elder, the beer. Uh, this is Pliny the Younger. By the way, this was actually the nephew of the real Pliny the Elder, who was a naturalist. I don't know if he made beer or not. But Pliny the Younger was a governor in Asia Minor, near the city of Ephesus in the second century, and he's apparently familiar with female deacons in the church during that time. So just a historical note, by that time there were female deacons in the church. Um, in Romans chapter 16, if you want to see it in the New Testament, Romans 16, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in, Ken in Kentria. Kentria is near uh, Corinth. Right? So Phoebe's called a deacon in the church, and by the time uh, Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, and he says, hey, greetings to you Philippians, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So one of the early church, earliest churches in Europe, the first church planted by Paul, now, some 10 years later, has both overseers, or what we call elders and deacons in that church. Now these women... Uh, who serve as deaconesses, they must be four things, right? They must be, number one, respected. That's the same word it's used to say the deacons must be respected. Well, so must be the deaconesses. Dignified, serious about their business. They have earned the respect of the rest of the church by their good lifestyle, by their words, and by their actions. And when I say by their words you find out what the second qualification is. And uh, Paul mentions this specifically. A deaconess must not be one who's characterized by slandering others. Not somebody who's known as being a malicious gossip. By the, word, that, by the way, that word slander must not slander others. Do you know what the word is in Greek? Diabolos. Diabolos. Anybody know Diablo in Spanish, right? The devil. So what is the devil known for? Slandering, accusing. Accusing others. Uh, the word gossip is a Hebrew word. It's a word picture. It means when the person's back is turned to you, you kick them in the back. You know, that behind there, you don't talk to them directly, but you're going to kick them in the back. That's what gossip all is, is all about. You know, in the church today, I, 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 I hesitate to say this, but I got to just call out. In the church today, one of the worst sins that happens in the community as we're gathered together, as people gather together and they start talking, one of the worst sins is gossip. And do you know one of the, who one of the worst gossips is in this church today? Do you know? So they must be respected. They must not slander others, not known for being malicious gossips. Some of you are begging me to tell you the answer to that. That says more about you than me. All right. Uh, and then the third one, somebody who exercises self-control. 
And, and by the way, so if you're exercising self-control, you're also being able to tame your tongue. That's a, that's a huge exercise in self-control. James says the tongue is a raging fire. The tongue is something that's out of control. You know, you can control a horse by a bridle. You can c control a ship by the rudder. But you can't tame the tongue. The tongue is like a spark that sets off a forest fire, sets off by the fires of hell. Who can tame the tongue? I mean, read James chapter 3. He rails against uh, malicious talk and misusing the tongue to bring down other people, right? Lisa, you have this awesome, uh, you can tell it some other time, but it's a great story. In fact, if she ever does a D GTO, say, hey, Lisa, Lisa, do the thing with the toothpaste, okay? Yeah, just, just remind her, say, do sometime something with the toothpaste. Exercising self-control, taming their tongue, um, large, powerful horses. James says at the end of that passage in James 3, says, out of the overflow, now, in fact, Jesus says these words, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Somebody says, oh, I didn't, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't really know what I was saying. Oh, really? You didn't even know what you were saying when you said that harmful declaration about somebody. Uh, now you want to take it back. Well, Jesus says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So somebody wants to be a good deacon or deaconess, deaconess they must exercise self-control um, of their whole self, including what they say with their tongue. And then finally... They must be faithful in everything they do. Be faithful in everything they do. Trustworthy. You give them a job to do and they do it. They have a responsibility, they take care of it. They are reliable in taking care of their assigned duties. When you hear somebody say, consider it done, and you know their character is so sterling that, that you know, it is done. It isn't done yet physically, but you know their character is such a, that it's going to be done, right? So there are the four qualifications for women, leaders, deaconesses in the church. Let's go back to the deacons, because now Paul says, okay, back to the males, back to the men. So he says, verse 12, a deacon must be faithful to his wife. He must manage his children and household well. Now you're probably saying, where have I heard that before? You heard that two weeks ago when we were talking about the qualifications for elders. Same qualification here for for deacon, a one-woman man, same marital standard, a monogamous in marriage, not known for any promiscuity, playing around, cheating on their wife. That would not make a good deacon, right? Must manage his children and household well. The same standard is for an elder. And now verse 13, those who do well as deacons, they'll be rewarded. Uh, they'll be rewarded in two ways. The first reward they're going to get if you serve well as a deacon is you're going to have respect from the others in the church. It's a nice thing to be known as somebody who has earned respect by the way you live your life, by the way you serve, by the way you're willing to pitch in to help with needs in the church. And they're also going to have a reward as increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the outpouring of their life, what they do with their life is a demonstration of what they believe. It, it's, a, it's an outward uh, fruit of the transformation that Jesus is making in your life. So you see somebody is known for serving, they, you know that Jesus is at work in their life because he said the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many and they're imitating Jesus when they serve sacrificially in that way, right? Now, Paul's going to change uh, direction now and he goes to verse 14 and he says enough talk about elders, enough talk about deacons, 
He's going to summarize this for Timothy, and he says, Timothy, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, but if I can't be there soon, I, you're going to have to put this into practice in the churches there in Ephesus, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And my, what a magnificent statement that is. When you, when you say, when we gather together on Sunday mornings as Jesus people, when we gather together to worship and to pray together and to learn what it means to follow Christ, Paul puts it in terms, the household of God, the church of the living God. We're, what we're doing right now is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, right? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. As a pillar then the church is what supports and strengthens the truth. Now, remember when I say church, I'm not talking about these four walls. The word church is the word ecclesia. The best way to translate the word ecclesia is gathering or assembly. Ecclesia means people, not a building. So when we're talking about the church here, we're talking about the people. This is the assembly of God's people of the living God. That's the pillar and the foundation of the truth, right? So, uh, when you think about the pillar and foundation of the truth, think about those people back in the first century in the city of Ephesus, reading this or hearing this from the Apostle Paul or hearing Timothy read this letter to them from the Apostle Paul. And those Ephesians could very easily be looking up on the hill or thinking up on the hill to this magnificent temple, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, this great temple to Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians, right? That temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in, in Athens, Greece. That temple had 127 pillars that were holding up that structure. Some of those pillars were, were inlaid, overlaid with gold and precious jewels. I think Paul was alluding to that when he was writing them. And he says, remember that, remember that magnificent building structure temple that's out there? When you think of yourselves as the, as the church, God's people gathered together, you are like that. As you gather together, as every person gathers and does his or her part in the church, you are like the pillars that are holding up God's temple, the ecclesia, the called out people of God here in the church today. That's a, that's a high calling that we have. And that foundation is the mainstay that the church supports it defends, it maintains the truth. The church supports, defends, and maintains the truth of Jesus as is faithfully revealed in God's Word, the New Testament. All right? Now, we come to the end of the chapter 3. Paul's going to launch into this beautiful poem. Probably was an ancient song, one of the early praise songs that they sang in the church today. So he launches in this beautiful poem and he says, Without question, this is verse 16. This is a long verse, by the way. You know, if you want to memorize the Bible verse easily, go to John eleven thirty five. That's Jesus wept. That's all you need to know. Jesus wept. Got my Bible verse down, right? Try memorizing this one. One verse, verse 16. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith, right? First, Christ was revealed in a human body. What I want you to see in this, in this poem is I want you to see the contrast of the human and the divine, the earthly Jesus and the heavenly Jesus, the heavenly spirit of God, right? So 
That's why, that's why I put earthly and heavenly to each side, what it was talking about. So Christ was revealed in a human body, talking about the incarnation, talking about Jesus becoming a human being, talking about God becoming flesh, right? The Messiah revealed to us uh, in a human body, God's anointed one. Uh, taking on flesh there in the, in the cradle there, or the manger in Bethlehem, right? So revealed in a human body, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Look what Peter says in the book of Acts. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourself know. One of the ways Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit is wherever Jesus went, miracles happened. Miracles happened. Uh, people got healed. Demons were cast out. Sicknesses were uh, removed. People were made whole. People's lives were changed miraculously wherever Jesus went. That, and that was accredited to Jesus through the miracles that God's Spirit did through Jesus. So he was vindicated by the Spirit in the miracles when he was on earth. He was vindicated by the Spirit in His resurrection. In His resurrection. In fact, it says in Romans 8, verse 11, it says the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. So vindicated by the Holy Spirit that Jesus really is who He claimed to be, the Savior and the Messiah. Jesus was seen by angels. Oh, everywhere you look in the New Testament, Jesus, wherever Jesus goes, Angels were there, whether they're mentioned or whether they're not mentioned, whether they're visible or whether they're not visible. Jesus is born and outside in the fields nearby, the whole heavenly host show up saying glory to God in the highest, right? Jesus is baptized by John in the, in the Jordan River and the angel uh, or, or the spirit of God comes down on him like a dove and it says angels ministered to Jesus while he was undergoing his 40 days of temptation in the desert, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, asking Peter, James, and John to go with him, and, and he was sorrowful to the point of death, and it says, and an angel came and ministered to him. When you see the resurrection in the empty tomb, there are two angels standing there, sitting there, saying, why are you looking for the dead among the living? He's not here. He's risen. And then, of course, Jesus, uh, when he comes back, he's going to send his angels for you and me. And the angels are going to gather up the elect, which is a great word for all of those who trusted in Christ. And he's going to gather, the angels are going to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. The angels are active in this world today in the ministry of the church and of the gospel. Announced to the nations. Announced to the nations. That's that word ethne. That's the word to all peoples, not just to the Jewish people. To the, you know, the, it says the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It says to the Jew first and then also to the Gentiles, to the rest of the nations. And the, and the gospel is being announced to all nations in the world today. People are believing in Jesus every single day. People are coming to faith in Christ every single day here on planet Earth. Here's the statistics. 7.5 billion people on planet Earth. 2.7 million converts to the Christian faith every year. 2.7 million people becoming Christian who were not Christian the year before. 2.7 million new Christians every year. That's about 7,400 new Christians each day. That means, and I'm doing more math here, one out of every 100,000 people is becoming a Christian 
every day. Doesn't seem like much, but it all adds up. Because uh, there's two point some billion followers of Christ on the planet today. And it is growing. It is the fastest growing religion in the world today. So nowadays, the, the church of the Lord Jesus, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in the first century. They built the church. They established the church in the first century. Nowadays, in the daily governing and the leading of local congregations, nowadays God has given that responsibility of leadership over to elders and overseers and to deacons and to deaconesses. And the deacons and esses, they are the chief servants in the church. Jesus said, the greatest among you are the ones who serve. So we should have a great deal of respect for those who serve in our church as deacons and deaconesses. Paul combined that Christian freedom with service, right? He says in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, Dear friends, you've been called to live in freedom, but not freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. You've been called to freedom to serve one another in love. In fact, April, can you and the rest of the worship team, Hannah, can you guys come up and get ready to close uh, our service today? Let me, let me say Galatians 5 again. For you, dear friends, you've been called to live in freedom, but not freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. That's what a lot of people think the Christian faith is. That's why Christianity got maligned by the Jewish faith a lot in the first century because he says, oh, if you have freedom in Christ, if you're already forgiven, if you're not living under the law, well, you just have freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. And Paul says, no, that's not why God gave you freedom. He gave you freedom in Christ so that you could use that freedom to serve one another in love. The greatest among you is the one who serves. We've been given freedom. Let's use our freedom to serve. And those, and I put this in yellow to highlight it. So those in the church who serve well, those in the church who are exhibiting that high moral character, they are the ones that would make great deacons and deaconesses. So for the church people, remember, this fall, remember what I've just talked about today. It'll be at sebchristian.com. You can review it if you want to. Here's what I got to say in closing. Jesus is the ultimate model of a servant leader, right? He said, the son of man, he said he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And remember what he said at the end here. Jesus, when he said he came to serve, what is the best expression of that service? Jesus says he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus loved us and served us by giving his life for us. Jesus looked at us. You remember I said like gift of service is somebody who has that supernatural gift by God. They look around and they say, what are the needs of these people? What do they need? How can I help meet their needs, right? Jesus looked at you and me and he said, you know what your greatest need is? Your greatest need is to be reconciled to a holy God. Your greatest need is to have that barrier that's between you and God, which is your sin, God's holiness, mankind in our sin, and Christ comes as our mediator, and he says he gave his life as a ransom for many. He, his life was the substitute payment. Jesus paid the ransom for the wages of sin. That's why he merits all of our loyalty. He merits all of our honor, our respect, and he, he is worthy of us giving our lives and saying, Lord, if you gave your life for me, I'm going to live for you. 
I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm going to give my life and commit it to follow you. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Follow me. You know, look at this verse here. John, the, uh, John was known as John the Baptist, said that. He said, Jesus, as Jesus grows in popularity and John the Baptist's ministry started diminishing in popularity, John had the best attitude of all. He said, you know what? This is the way it's supposed to be. He must increase and I must decrease. You cannot be a Christ follower unless you say that every day. You say, Lord Jesus, I want you to increase in my life. I want to, myself, my flesh, my, my rebellious human tendency to say, I want it my way, not God's way. God, that part has to decrease so that you can increase. If that's what you want today, if you've heard the good news of Christ today, if you want to respond to it and say, I think I get it now. The Christian life is all about putting your trust in Jesus as your Savior and following Him as your Lord. If you get that, you know what the Christian faith is all about. The real question is, have you made that decision? Have you consciously said to the Lord, I will follow you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you because you were the greatest servant of all. And the way you define leadership by service is so revolutionary to us. God, we, we only see in this world, we see those who lead as those who are in charge, those who have the, the reins of power, those are the ones who are making the decisions and telling everybody else what to do. Lord, you turned that upside down and you said the greatest among you is the one who serves. And Lord, that, that substitute payment that you did on the cross for us, there's the ultimate act of service. So, Lord Jesus, we give our lives to you today. We say, forgive us of our sins. We say, cleanse our hearts, cleanse our guilty conscience. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and empower us to live the kind of life that pleases you, the kind of life that walks in fellowship with you, the kind of life that says, I want to love the way you love. I want to look around, and instead of thinking only about me, I want to think about how to help other people. God, help us to live that kind of life as we know you and as we follow you in a deeper way each day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.